turn to our reading in the Gospel according to Luke in chapter 15. The Gospel according to Luke in chapter 15 at the beginning. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now this chapter contains three well-known parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And perhaps the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son is the best known of all of the parables. And we have heard sermons, I'm sure, in the parable of the prodigal son. And these sermons have taken the parable in isolation. They have taken the parable as if it stood on its own. And there's great danger in this, as we will see. Because there are some people in the church who would argue that the whole gospel is contained in the parable of the prodigal son. But this parable is indeed the gospel. And they make God the universal father who receives all erring sons back into his family. All you've got to do is to return to the Father, the Heavenly Father, and that's all that salvation is about. There's no mention, you see, about the work of the, of, of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no mention about the atonement in the parable of the prodigal son. And there's no mention of the work of the Holy Spirit in that parable. There's no mention that the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart of that man who returned to his father. So why is that? Why is there no mention of these things in the parable of the prodigal son? Well, the reason for it is because they are mentioned in the preceding parable. And when you come to the parable of the prodigal son, you already know about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit because they are mentioned in the two previous parables. And what links all these parables together is the statement we have here at the beginning of the chapter. Verses 1 and 2 are like a text that is expounded, and this, this text is expounded in the remainder of the chapter. And to see the background, we realize that Jesus had been teaching and he had been teaching certain things about the cost of being a disciple, what following him really meant. And he was giving really strong stuff to these people. He was really laying it on the line, as it were, what it meant to be a disciple, what it meant to follow him. That's in the preceding chapter. And then immediately after that, we read, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners, to hear him. The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering to hear him. This man with a message. And who were these people who were flocking, as it were, to hear Christ and to hear what he was saying? Well, they were first of all publicans or tax collectors. These were the people who helped the Romans in their administration of the conquered territory of Palestine. And these people enriched themselves at the expense 
expense of their fellow countrymen, unless they were hated by the Jews. They were ostracized by many of the Jews, and they were regarded as outcasts by the religious people, by the Pharisees and the scribes. They were regarded as extortioners and traitors, these publicans, these tax collectors. They were hated by the people. And who are the sinners? Well, well, the sinners were the people of a bad reputation, the immoral people, either people who were, had been sinful and were sinful, or people who followed occupations that the religious regarded as incompatible with the law. And so it's these two groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, who are coming to hear Jesus. And of course the scribes and the Pharisees would have nothing to do with such people. To associate with such people, they would consider was contaminating. To, to even associate with them was something that was contaminating them. And to eat with them was outrageous. To dine with publicans and sinners, with tax collectors and sinners, was outrageous. Because, you see, it implied welcome and it implied recognition. And so these two groups came under the censure of the scribes and Pharisees. But these two groups were the groups who were gathering round to hear Jesus. And in contrast to the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus didn't mind associating with them. He was often to be seen in their company. He even selected a tax collector to be one of his disciples, to be one of the twelve, and he dined with them. And he was in complete contrast then to the Pharisees and to the scribes, because he associated with these people, and he ate with them, and he was seen in their company. And of course that was fitting, because we know that he came to help sinful men. And he could not do this if he did not meet them, and if he did not associate with them. How could he help them unless he associated with them? And he met them on their own level. And he met them where they were. And he met with them to do them good. He met with them in order to deliver them from their sinful ways. And the tax collectors and the sinners were not they slow to recognize the difference between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. They saw how different Christ's attitude to them was to that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew how unwelcome they were amongst the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees looked down their noses at them. They had nothing to do with them. They rejected them. But here is Jesus, and he associates with them, he dines with them, he speaks to them, and they know the difference. They know that Jesus has an interest in them, and has a concern for them. They regarded Jesus as their friend. His teaching was uncompromising. There was an authority about his teaching, and yet they loved him. They loved him. They, they recognized that he was concerned for their good. 
They recognized that he was interested in them, and therefore they gathered round him. And you see, they didn't put on a show like the Pharisees and the scribes. They weren't ashamed to call themselves sinners and tax collectors. They recognized their true position, and they were not putting on a show or putting on a face. They just recognized themselves for what they were, and they came to Jesus, and they came to hear him, and they gathered round him. And what was the result of that? Well, the result was that the Pharisees grumbled. They grumbled at Jesus. They murmured at him. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. It could be translated, this fellow, that's what they called him, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. On a previous occasion they had found fault with his disciples for doing this very thing, for associating with the, with the tax collectors and the sinners, for dining with them. But now they criticize Jesus himself. They go a step further, but even bolder, and they begin to criticize Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And you see here we have the gospel out of the mouth of Christ's enemies. How often that occurs in the New Testament, especially of course, in the Gospels. The Gospel spoken from the mouth of Christ's enemies. This is what they say. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And of course that was true because Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And therefore to say that he welcomes sinners and eats with them was true. They were stating a truth. They were speaking it in the, in the wrong way and in the wrong spirit, but they were speaking a truth that this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then, as it were, to show how this was true, how the, 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 the attitude of Jesus was true, and how the attitude of the Pharisees was wrong, Jesus told this parable, and he spake this parable unto them, saying, and therefore. The parable that he speaks, there the three, three parables that he speaks at this time, are first of all to expose the mistake of the Pharisees, to show how wrong the Pharisees were, and secondly to encourage these tax collectors and sinners, to show them that this is the position, that this Jesus, who is the Son of God, and therefore God himself, is someone who welcomes sinners and eats with them. And the Pharisee's attitude is all wrong. It's not Christian. It's not right. These religious leaders were all wrong in their attitude to people. They were all wrong in their attitude to sinners, to publicans, to tax collectors. And Jesus shows that. He exposes them in these parables. He exposes their attitude and he shows that God, the Father, and He Himself, and the Holy Spirit are those who are interested in the salvation of sinners. 
And the first thing we see about these parables, and we look at them in general today, is that the key parables form a unity. They form a unity. And it's wrong to take any one parable out of context, because they are like a mute, like key musical instruments, each making a different sound, but playing the same tune. That's what we could say about these parables. Three, three parables, like three musical instruments, each making a different sound, but all playing the same tune. And what is the tune? What is the tune that is being played in these three parables? Well, it's the yearning love of the Godhead for the lost sinner and the joy when the sinner is found. It's the joy of the Godhead in finding the lost sinner. And you will see that note struck in all three parables. In the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep, when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he got, got calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. In the parable of the lost coin, the woman who lost the coin, when she had found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I had lost. And then in the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, there's the great welcome that the father gives to the son. And then the great reception he receives at home. They make a feast, and they begin eh, to be eat and to drink and to be merry. And there's the sheer joy in all the parables of finding a lost article or a lost son. There's this same theme running through all three parables, the joy of finding. And the basic lesson is the same in all three. Man's misery in being lost and God's joy in finding. God is seeking the sinner and God rejoices when he finds the sinner. And this is revolutionary thinking as far as the scribes and the Pharisees were concerned. Because the rabbis taught that God would welcome the penitent sinner if he returned. But the idea that God himself is a seeking God, that God is seeking the sinner and yearning over the sinner and longing for the sinner to return, the fact of God taking the initiative, that was altogether new to them. And this is what is so revolutionary in Jesus' thinking and in what Jesus says, that God is actually yearning over sinners, yearning over the lost, and he rejoices with exceeding joy when the lost are found and when the lost are brought home. And that's the theme that goes through all the three parables, and that's what makes them a unity, and we should never break that unity. There's a unity in these parables that speak to us about the joy of God in finding the lost sinner. And secondly, we must say therefore that these three parables are complementary. They are complementary. There's no reference, as we said already, to the work of the Son in the parable, the work of Jesus Christ the Son in the parable of the lost Son. And there's no reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in that parable. 
It would seem that in the parable of the prodigal son, that the son did everything himself, that he returned of his free will, and so on. But we know that's not true of sinners. Sinners do not return of their own free will to the Father. You will not come to me that you might have life, said Jesus. And so therefore, we know from other parts of Scripture that the sinner left to himself will not return to the Father's house. But you see what the third parable is doing? It's focusing on the yearning love of the Father for the sinner and his joy in his returning to the family house, to his father's house. And it can afford to do that because Jesus has already spoken in the previous two parables about his own work as a shepherd and about the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see, this chapter is telling us in a marvelous way about the work of the triune God in our salvation. It's a work of the triune God, our salvation. Many people speak as if Jesus was doing it all. They speak as if Jesus was trying to influence the Father to love us. But you see, the work of salvation is the grand work of the triune God. The Trinity are totally involved in our salvation. The Father is involved in the loving and in the planning of the salvation. The Son is involved in the undertaking of the salvation. And the Spirit is involved in the applying of the salvation. And you see, the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep, is speaking to us of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It brings in that image of the Old Testament, the image of the sheep and the shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jehovah was the shepherd of his people. Jesus is a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And we are sheep who are wandering away from the fold, willfully wandering from God, and Jesus goes out to look for us and to bring us back. And that's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first parable. Then in the second parable, we have the work of the Holy Spirit. Because of this woman who has lost a coin, and she goes to seek for this coin until she finds it. But you see, the thing about the coin, as distinct from the sun and as distinct from the sheep, is that the coin is a lifeless thing. And it's a nasty illustration of the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins. He's incapable of saving himself. He's not only willfully lost, but he's hopelessly lost, and he's helplessly lost. And it's only the Holy Spirit who can recover him and rescue him from his lostness. And so the second parable is speaking to us about the work of the Holy Spirit in recovering lost men and women. And the third parable is speaking to us about the Father. Because, you see, it's not only a sheep that is lost, it's not only a coin that is lost, but it's a rational, intelligent creature that is lost. A creature who has brought misery upon himself and is in a hopeless condition and in a hopeless position. 
he has brought misery on himself and his hope is in returning to a loving father who was waiting for him and so we have here therefore this complementary nature of these parables one speaks to us of the work of Christ the other speaks to us of the work of the Holy Spirit and the third speaks to us of the work of the Father so if you look at the parable of the prodigal son on its own it's speaking to you of the work of the Father but you see it's already assumed that the Son does a great work and the Spirit does a great work and when you come to the third parable it is speaking to you about the love of the Father and the joy that the Father experiences in receiving back his own and then the third and final thing in this general loop is that the three parables form a sequence now we couldn't shouldn't lay too much stress on this but there is an order in these things and there's an order in salvation and we could say that it is by the work of the son applied to us by the holy spirit that we come back to the father it is by the work of the Son applied to us by the Holy Spirit that we return to the Father's house and so there's that order in these parables and we know also of course that in the Trinity after the three persons in the Godhead are equal there is a subordination in their relationships not in their nature they're equal in their nature but in the relationships there's a subordination there's the father and there's the eternally begotten son and there's the holy spirit who is proceeding from the father and the son and therefore there's an order as you might say in in that respect and in this parable in these parables we find that same order there's much more attention given to the work of the Father than there is given to the work of the Son and to the work of the Holy Spirit. By far the greatest part of the chapter is given to the work of the Father, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. That takes up the greater proportion of the chapter and we believe there's some meaning behind that. And you see also how the value of the lost item steadily increases. In the first parable, the proportion is one in a hundred, one sheep in a hundred, one percent. In the second parable, the value is one in ten, ten percent, one coin in ten. But when you come to the parable of the lost son, it's one in two, fifty percent. And the joy increases proportionately it's not perhaps a terrible great loss for a shepherd to lose one sheep in a hundred he could get over that and then for a woman to lose one coin in ten a tenth of what her savings were well that's quite a lot for her the value increases but then to lose one son in two that's much more important that's much more valuable to lose one son in two and therefore you can see that the joy increases to recover one sheep 
will have something to be thankful for. To recover one coin in ten, that is something to be thankful for. But to recover one son out of two, well, that's something to be really joyful and to be really glad about. And you see, the proportion increases. The value of the lost item increases as the parables go on. And therefore, we believe there's a sequence in these parables. And the very sequence is teaching us something. Now this morning, to conclude with a word of application, as these three parables are all speaking to us about the lostness of man, do you recognize today your lostness? That you are helplessly lost, that you are woefully lost, and that you are hopelessly lost? Because that's what the parables are teaching us, that man by nature is lost in all these respects. He's helplessly lost, he's woefully lost, and he's hopelessly lost. That's our condition by nature. We are lost sinners. But who is concerned with our salvation? None other than the triune God. And that's the wonderful news that Jesus is imparting to these people, that the triune God is concerned with our salvation. He, they are longing to have us restored. God is rejoicing when we are found. God is joyful. There is joy amongst the angels of heaven when one sinner repents. It's God's joy and delight to save sinners. And that's the wonderful news. You see, that's where the Pharisees went so far wrong. They looked down their noses at the sinners, the tax collectors, the wicked people. They would have nothing to do with them. How unlike God they are. How unlike God were these religious people who are supposed to be so good. They were totally unlike God because God is a person who does not look down his nose at sinners. But God is the person who is involved in caring for sinners and is concerned for sinners and is longing for sinners to return. He's delighting to save. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's the God you've got to think about. Not the God that the scribes and Pharisees would have you believe in. But the God who delights in mercy. And the God who delights to save. And the God who is waiting for the sinner to return. And the God who rejoices with exceeding joy when the sinner returns. That's the kind of God that Jesus is speaking about. And that's the kind of person Jesus was. So unlike the religious people of his day. He's got this warmth and he's got this interest and he's got this concern with men in their need. With the publicans and the sinners. And today my friend if you're indeed acknowledging your lostness. That's one of the greatest blessings that can ever come to you. Why should I say that? Well, because it puts you in the category of those that God is seeking and that Jesus came to save. As long as you're in the category of the scribes and Pharisees, there's no hope. But if you recognize today your lostness, 
then you're putting yourself in the category of those that Jesus came to save and that God is looking for and searching for and yearning over and that's the wonderful news even if you're only at that stage that's the wonderful thing that you're in a category of those who Jesus came to save if you were and I think I used this illustration before if you were held hostage in a building in London if you were belonging to another country and you were held hostage in a, in a building in London and you heard that some people from your own country had come to rescue you well even though you were in that building at that time you would know that these, you were one of these very people that they had come to save because you have that identification with that group and you see that is what it is with us as sinners we can rejoice in this that we are in the category of those that Jesus came to save he came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance and that's the glory of the opposition if you could say that that we are in the category that the father is yearning over that the son is seeking that the holy spirit is working in we are in that category we are lost but that is precisely the people that god is looking for that god is seeking that the son is mingling with he came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance so this man this man is welcoming sinners and he's eating with them that's the good news today he is not calling the righteous the self-righteous he's calling those who know their lostness and who feel their lostness and who can do nothing to save themselves he's welcoming them he's welcoming you he will receive you he will not cast you out if you come to him may you bless our meditation let us conclude